Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian as we reread our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien, and his Aubrey Matron Cannon. Now, this is the point where I would normally turn it over to Ian, but I have to stop immediately for a parish notice. You are listening. You've listened to many of our episodes that just happen to fall on auspicious days, but none more so than today. I hope you will join me in wishing a happy birthday to my young particular friend, Mr. Ian Bradley, Yeah, on this day. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, it's great to be here. A great thing to be doing on one's birthday. Right. <laughs> good, good, good. On Madrid. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sitting in a hotel room in Madrid. Um, anyway, that's, that's all good. <laughs> so, Mike, let's talk about where we were last time. We, we had opened up our slower reread of Post Captain with peace breaking out and our heroes finding themselves ashore at this rented property, Melbury Lodge. They had already noticed, certainly Jack had already noticed, their very admirable neighbor, Diana, out fox hunting. And that had taken us into O'Brien's introduction of the Williams family to us, the girls and their mother and their cousin, Diana. The local uh, seagoing character, Admiral Haddock, had briefed the Williams family on their new neighbors, Captain Aubrey, and Stephen Maturin saying that maybe Jack was not quite the thing. But Cecilia, one of the sisters, speaking for the whole family, said she longed to see them. So, Mike, that was last time. This time in Chapter 2, Jack and Stephen get to know the Williams girls better in their own right. We have Shakespeare and Dryden and Samuel Johnson and a bunch of others making literary appearances. Jack and Stephen host a ball... And the Jane Austen plot thickens as everyone engages the enemy more closely. Huh. I wonder who the everyone is. I wonder what kind of engagement. Mike, I can't wait. This is going to be a big one. I'm really looking forward to getting into this chapter. Oh, Ian, you you and me both. I just yeah. I just love this. You know, engaging the enemy. Who is the enemy here, right? <laughs> well, Cecilia doesn't have to wait long with her longing to see these new tenants of Melbury Lodge. We began the chapter learning that Admiral Haddock had invited the Williams family, Captain Aubrey and Dr. Matron, to a dinner. And that was followed some days later by another dinner at Mapes, hosted by the Williams. Mm-hmm. And afterward... The Williams pronounced the pair, that is to us, Stephen and Jack, to them, Captain Aubrey and Dr. Matron, excellent young men, most agreeable company, perfectly well-bred, and a great addition to the neighborhood. Now, Sophia thought Stephen looked pale, silent, and in need of feeding, but no one in the family thought that of Jack. (laughs) He is in excellent form throughout the Babes dinner party. He's smiling, eating everything placed before him and wanting to eat some other things that they see him eyeing. Uh, He's full of cheerful small talk from beginning to end. And O'Brien tells us even Mrs. Williams felt something like an affectionate leaning towards him, you know, at the end of the evening. Well, after they've left, Mrs. Williams declares it their most successful dinner party ever and says that Captain Aubrey is very much the thing, despite what Admiral Haddock had said. And she points out Captain Aubrey's interest in Sophia, suggesting that all the girls leave the two of them alone together as often as possible. And then she stops and checks to make sure that Diana understands. Mm, The dynamic we're going to see lots of here. (laughs) 
Oh, it, it's fascinating as well that her she, she's very, very shallow, right, Mrs. Williams? She's been convinced by Jack Aubrey smiling and telling jokes and eating at least one portion of every course. On the way home, we learned that from the men's perspective, the dinner wasn't quite the roaring success that she's talking about. Jack says, by the time I get home, I hope there's going to be more to eat and some decent wine. He says he he's never known a woman with any notion of wine. And he describes the host as having been damned near with the pudding. He was unhappy with the small portion sizes there. Even so, he goes straight into talking about how charming he found the girls. He noticed the grace of the oldest Miss Williams' hand. That's Sophie's hand. He was admiring her fingers as she looked at the candle through her wine glass, admiring Mrs. Villiers' beautiful way of holding her head, her complexion, almost as fine as that of her cousin Sophie's, and her deep blue eyes. And he turns to Stephen, who is scratching himself at this point, not paying attention, asks Stephen, how old do you think she is? And learning that she's less than 30, Jack talks about how well she sat her horse. And now we get a little inclination of what's on Jack's mind. Despite the fact that he's advertised to the world that he's he's done with women for now, he says, by God, a year or two back, I should have... Oh, how a man changes. But even so, I do love being surrounded by girls, so very different from men. <laughs> and uh, he notices that Diana's knowledge of naval matters, such as the idea of the weather gauge, that that's kind of, that's a work in progress. And he concludes that he hopes to see her again soon. Hopes, in fact to see all of them again soon. So, Mike, this this is all pretty warm in both directions. Mrs. Williams thinks Jack is the thing. Jack thinks the girls are the thing. What can possibly go wrong? Right, right. Well, in, in fact, Jack wants to see them again soon. And, and again, like Cecilia getting her wish, Jack gets his. Mm -hmm. They do see them again very soon. The Williams, who, in I'm doing air quotes here, just happened to be passing by, oh, yeah. Stop at Melbury, you know, soon thereafter. And they are escorted into the hall to, you know, wait for the gentleman. And they hear a powerful voice singing, You ladies of lubricity that dwell in the bordello. Ha 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 he, for I am that kind of fellow. Now, since Diana is the only one that understands the words and is not easily upset, the ladies are unmoved by the song. Uh, a pigtail servant guides them into the parlor, which Miss Williams finds disappointingly trimmed as if it had been spring cleaned that very morning. But they do notice that the chairs are completely squared to one another like a ship's yards and that the bell is, and I'll, I'll quote the text here, three fathoms of cable wormed and served and ending in a brass bound top lock. Ian, <laughs> please decode this nautical phraseology for us. Well, ending in a brass-bound top block means that the, the end of it is a pulley with, with brass on it. Wormed and served. Um, worming is the process of taking a heavy cable and running twine in the gaps between the bigger fibers in the cable to kind of make it a more even round cross-section. And serving is the process of winding a really thin spun yarn around the outside of the rope to give it a... Uh, as kind of a seal or a handle or a kind of surface effect that you can grip. So on a boat, it's done for finishing off and tidying and preserving the rigging. Here on a bell pull, it's just being done as a decorative way to finish off a piece of rope work. And it's a very, very nautical look alongside the, the pigtail sailor servant. I think it's creating the whole ensemble here. Now, as Jack's voice singing the, uh, the off-color song stops, Diana reflects that well, maybe somebody else's face is going red. And indeed, 
Captain Aubrey's face does have some colour when he comes in, telling them how neighbourly and kind this afternoon visit is and how happy he is to see each of the girls. And Mrs. Williams goes straight into middle-class manoeuvring mode and she says something that's so far from being true. She says, oh, we just stopped to ask how the jasmine is thriving. And if this was a 1970s situation comedy, you'd believe that how is the jasmine thriving must be a euphemism for something. But it's not. It's just her finding a code way of saying, mm, I wanted to pay a call and I don't have to explain particularly why. Jack goes along with it. He invites them into the drawing room, stands over by the fire, says, well, Dr. Maturin is the fellow to tell you about jasmine. And Stephen, who for now is wearing a very old black coat and rubbing his three days growth of beard, gets up from the pianoforte and bows and stands silently. Now, Mike, this felt to me like a very awkward moment, Stephen not really choosing to engage in the little middle-class deceptive banter here. But never mind, Mrs. Williams charges on anyway. She says, oh, piano, you're musicians. Ah, I love music. And she goes on to say in the most shallow way that she really doesn't have a clue about music. Although she usually doesn't notice Stephen because she'd heard from Dr. Vining that naval surgeons are poorly qualified and low paid. She decides to bring Stephen into the conversation anyway, asks him if he plays and he holds up his music and says he's just been picking out this piece, but the piano is out of tune. Mrs. Williams says, not this one, it's a Clementi. And we'll talk about Clementi and pianos in a second. And Sophia says, of course, Mama, pianos do go out of tune. Mrs. Williams, the mother, completely denies it. This is the most expensive piano in London. It's a Clementi. Everybody knows that Clementi's pianos don't go out of tune. And this sounds like a really awkward standoff. But rescue comes when she adds that her eldest daughter, Sophie, had painted the piano case in the Chinese style. And Jack says, well, that clinches it then. It would be an ungrateful instrument that fell off having been decorated by Miss Williams. Very gracious little conversational turn by Jack. He knows what these maneuvers are all about, even if Stephen hasn't realized yet. And he says, well, Stephen and I were admiring the landscape and the pagoda this morning. Stephen lifts up the page of this piece of music. This day, it says it's the Hummel D major piano sonata. Come to that in a second. And he shows beneath the sheet music, the painting points to these features that they like so much. And this all seems to be okay, but Sophia is pretty embarrassed by the strident tone of her mum. She's embarrassed by all the attention as well directed to her. And Mike, I think we're going to hear some more about Sophie being uncomfortable being the subject of attention. In any case, she looks at Stephen's music and there's this nice little connection for a moment here between Stephen and Sophie. And she recollects that her teacher had made her practice this particular piece again and again. So Mike, can, can I dig into Clementi and Hummel here for a second? Oh, oh, this is music, and you absolutely have to. Great stuff. So Clementi, it's true. Clementi was a, a kind of piano celebrity of the late 18th century. Clementi pianos, in fact, haven't stuck around, uh, as well as being a celebrity for uh, being a piano maker. He was also a music performer and composer and publisher. And actually, hardly any pianos of that era were built to last up until the 21st century, so you won't see a Clementi piano now. The piano maker of the age that you might still see around is Broadwood, Thomas Broadwood and Sons, much more likely to have been in a middle-class drawing room in Hampshire, to be honest, but never mind. Clementi being a celebrity, though, highlights why the shallow Mrs. Williams was quite keen to drop his name. In any case, the slightly more interesting name to drop is the one of Hummel, because he's the one 
playing a piece that is known to Stephen and to Jack and to Sophie. And we're going to come back to this Hummel sonata on, on a few more occasions. So Hummel was a perfectly reputable late 18th, early 19th uh, century piano composer and composer of a bunch of other things as well, orchestral music and so on. This piece, the Hummel D major sonata, even though it's going to be important through the book, and I think also later on in the canon, is typically for O'Brien a bit of a near miss in terms of its authenticity. Hummel's certainly contemporary. He would have been one of the composers that Jack and Stephen might have bumped into if they'd done their 1802 trip to Vienna. He wrote only nine sonatas for keyboard. Only one of them is, in fact, in D major, but he published it in 1814, which is 12 years too late for this timeline. And also the Hummel D major sonata. It has a slow movement, but it's not an adagio, and it doesn't have variations in it. So if we want to find a likely candidate for this um, really important sort of touchstone piece that involves Jack and Stephen and Sophie, we have to look for another Hummel sonata. Better than the uh, D major later one might be the F minor sonata. It was written in Vienna around 1807, so it's still not perfect, but at least it's a bit earlier. It's got a really beautiful slow movement marked adagio, and it has a much more variation-like scheme. So let's listen to a bit of it here. So there you go, Mike. Nobody knows for sure which Humble Sonata O'Brien might have had in mind. Probably doesn't matter. If you're interested, why not delve into all of them? There are nine of them. They're not very long. It wouldn't take very long. And see which ones sound to you like the character of Sophie sitting, learning at the keyboard. Yeah, you might, as as I did wandering around there, Ian, find the D major flute and piano piece, which ah. I, I thoroughly enjoyed. I'm sure it wasn't the one they were playing, but I had a great time listening to it. Ah, great. <laughs> researching this episode. That's great. Well, as this is going on, uh, these all these, if you will, servants are, are coming in and out of the drawing room and Mrs. Williams protested, oh, no, no, they really can't sit down or take refreshments. I'm sure she'd really love to, but she has to protest. But Killick and others bring in tables and trays, urns and more coal and Francis says, what ho for ship's biscuit and a swig of rum, which makes Cecilia laugh here. So the girls are quite enjoying this. And Jack takes Mrs. Williams off to try and find the jasmine. Yes, jasmine she's mentioned. And later, as out there outside, Stephen and Jack and Mrs. Williams looking at the jasmine, they hear the piano playing the adagio. Stephen winces that some of these notes are, are off. 
Uh, there's mistaken phrasing. And he looks up and he realizes Jack's not hearing this. He's intent upon Mrs. Williams' account of the planting of the jasmine. You know, yeah, why she came by to see this here. And the music stops and then restarts with another hand on the keyboard. And O'Brien writes, a fine ringing tone, inaccurate but strong and free. There was harshness in the tragic first variation, a real understanding of what it meant. And I, I love this, how O'Brien is using the listening to these people in another room playing piano to paint their differences in personality, as, as we'll see here. Well, Mrs. Williams remarks, hearing this second thing, how well dear Sophia plays. And Stephen says, Stephen being Stephen, that's certainly not Miss Williams playing. You know, And she insisted <laughs> it has to be since neither of her sisters can go beyond the scales. And Miss Villers, she says, cannot read a note, would not apply herself to the drudgery. Well, when they walk back in, in fact, Mrs. Villers stands up from the piano quickly, but not quick enough to escape Mrs. Williams' indignant eye. And uh, again, the text says, an eye so indignant that it did not lose its expression for the rest of the visit. It even outlasted Jack's announcement of a ball in commemoration of the Battle of St. Vincent and the gratification of being the first guest to be bespoke. Ah, Ian, <laughs> we've got a naval battle. You need to tell us more about this here. Uh, well, it, it gets mentioned a lot in the canon, uh, the Battle of St. Vincent, a battle that actually giving gave a, gave a noble title to the admiral who was in command at this great victory, at least what was seen by the British as a great victory. Um, Jack needs to ask Mrs. Williams, do you remember this battle? And she says, of course he did. And did we win? And the girls who were already ahead of her go, yes, of course we did. Captain Aubrey gets invited to tell the story and he says he was there. He was third lieutenant of the Orion. So... Admiral Sir John Jervis, Lord St. Vincent, as he would later be, had led this British fleet in 1797 off the Cape of St. Vincent, which is in Portugal. The British had 15 line of battleships against 24 Spanish ships. And in fact, the enemy fleet grew and grew as the fleets assembled. And uh, Jervis and his flag captain were counting the ships. And he was basically saying, never mind how many there are, the die is cast, we'll sail on into battle. So... He had said the night before to his officers and crew that a victory was essential, so he was going to stick ahead and, and get into battle no matter what. Um, during the battle, one Captain Horatio Nelson, in command of a vessel called HMS Captain, had worn out of the line and performed a really stunning feat to capture two enemy vessels within moments of each other. Nelson and his crew had boarded and captured one, crossed her deck and then boarded and captured the second, this this move was later celebrated by the public. It became known as Nelson's Patent Bridge for boarding first rates. And it was a move that some of us know is going to be copied by Jack Aubrey in his fictional life later on. So the famous Nelson's Bridge was at the Battle of St. Vincent. Interestingly, Sir John Jervis, as he was then, didn't mention Nelson's achievement in the initial dispatch to the Admiralty, despite the obvious contribution that Nelson made uh, in later dispatches. Jervis did mention Nelson and his tendency to disregard orders, although he forgave that on this occasion. Uh, again, another very Jack Aubrey characteristic. So we get a little signal here of what it was about Nelson that Aubrey really wanted to kind of admire and copy. So even though the British actually only captured four of the enemy vessels, 
the Battle of Cape St. Vincent became celebrated as an outstanding victory. The, the awards and recognition to the people who took part far outweighed the achievement. It was basically, Mike, we needed a victory, so this became the great victory. Right, right. Yeah. Fascinating uh, how that happens. Long before this, long after this, all over the world here. Yeah. Well, Mrs. Williams, I think, is needing a victory. She's got her girls aging, <laughs> and <laughs> they're not married off, not a one of them yet. And on the way home, Mrs. Williams tells the girls that the ball is being given as a compliment to her and her daughters and has no doubt Captain Aubrey will open it with Sophia on Valentine's Day. So she's mm. quite thrilled about this. Yeah. Now, Mrs. Williams realizes that Diana, who's now been publicly you know, asked to go and accepted, is going to have to attend. And she's not happy with that, but she's also thinking, well, there's no possible comparison between a woman with 10,000 pounds and one without. So her daughters <laughs> versus Diana. But she had seen certain looks that made her uneasy and wonders whether men of the Navy might not be quite as predictable as the local squires and their offspring. <laughs> All right. Diana and the Williams girls and Valentine's Day and a ball and naval men. I, I think even if I'm not Mrs. Williams, even if I don't have her outlook on life, I think I'm potentially a bit uneasy as well. Right. Anyway, she's marshalling her forces and she calls Diana in the next day for a little chat. This is a chat that Diana was not very prepared for. Um, it appears to be about a horse, but that usually relates to Mrs. Williams expressing concern about Diana borrowing Sophie's chestnut mare. But now this appears to be an offer for Diana to go ahead and get a horse of her own. And Diana spots straight away that this is a bribe for her, Diana, to leave the romantic field clear for her cousins. And so Sophie's more likely to go riding her horse with the two gentlemen instead of lending the horse to Diana. That's Mrs. Williams' logic anyway. And I love the, the text's description of Diana's response to this. She accepted the bait and spat out the hook with contempt and then hurried away to talk to the groom about getting out to a horse fair. So Diana spotted this for what it is, Mike, and uh, she's fine with it. Yep, she does. Uh, as, as she's headed out to see this groom, Diana sees Sophia coming back from Admiral Haddock's house, swinging her arms and muttering, Larbert, starboard, as she's walking. And Diana calls out, yo-ho, shipmate. And O'Brien writes, the chance shot goes straight home. <laughs> Sophia blushes. Sophia had been over at the Admiral's library, the Naval Library, you know, to kind of get a little intelligence. While she had been looking, the Admiral had surprised her there and pulled out the volume he thought she'd be looking for and said that Miss Di, you know, Diana, had been there long before her. Now, Sophia, in great distress, had tried to say, no, 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 she was looking for, but she couldn't finish her sentence. Her voice just died away. So I think she'd been caught out now twice in a row here trying to get a little strategic intelligence and learning that her cousin way ahead of her. Right. <laughs> so the girls are quite keen and they're making their maneuvers. Mrs. Williams is quite keen and she's been trying to sort of sweep Diana's competitive spirit out of the way. But as time goes by, she doesn't really feel that the acquaintance between Captain Aubrey and Sophia is maturing quite at the pace that she'd like. Jack seems very friendly, but seems just as happy with Francis, the younger sister, as he is with Sophia. So Mrs. Williams begins to wonder if he perhaps isn't really quite the thing, to go back to this phrase again. And what she means is she's not sure whether he fancies girls or not. 
whether those strange tales, she says, about sea officers might possibly be true in this case. Was it not very odd that he should live with Dr. Maturin? Well, Mrs. Williams, I'm pretty sure your your gaydar is way off beam there, but never mind. (laughs) She's also troubled because she's heard that Diana actually rides better than Sophie, but the die is cast. She's got Diana this horse and she's actually inadvertently given Diana the means to be seen and to to show off her kind of her, her differentiation, her skill in front of the, the men there. Sophia won't tell her now how she's feeling about this possible romance with Jack Aubrey and doesn't listen to her mother's advice to put herself out there more, to redden her lips before she's coming into the room. So, Mike, it seems that Mrs. Williams is going to have to find some new manoeuvres here if she's going to ensure the chance of closing the deal with Jack Aubrey. Right. She's a little unsure, but O'Brien tells us that Mrs. Williams, had he seen Sophia and Diana both riding in the next fox hunt, would have been even more concerned here. Sophia doesn't really like hunting. She doesn't like all the waiting around. She's fine with the galloping, but there's the poor fox. She's, she's not keen on that either. And her mare has spirit, but no great stamina, unlike Diana's new bay gelding that she'd bought here, bought, you know, Mrs. Williams had bought for her, who would carry Diana from morning to night and love to be in on the kill. Well, they've been hunting almost all of the day. It's getting towards evening now. They've killed two foxes already, and they've been led on this long, rare old dance by a barren vixen into very heavy country with wide ditches and a close-by drain that the fox is heading for. (laughs) It's a great setup. Uh, And because we're talking about this with the perspective of foxes and horses in mind, we should sort of have our antennae on high alert here because we're going to get some great O'Brien juxtapositions and situations here. Jack followed a lucky break, and he and Sophia were ending up closer to the hounds than anyone else in the hunt. They're facing a bank. They face this towering fence with mud in front of it, with broad water the far side of it. Sophia points her tired mare at this fence and has no real wish to get to the other side and is thankful when, surprise, surprise, the mare refuses. She, as the text says, had never felt more tired. She dreaded seeing the fox being torn to pieces and she's pretty much done. The dogs, for their part, signal that they have the fox in sight and Jack hollers at her to take the gate that he's holding open so she can compensate for the fact that she didn't make the jump. And just then, Stephen arrives as Sophia saying she wants to go home. She says, go ahead without me. I can get home on my own. And the sight of her face, her piteous face, as it's described, wipes away all of Jack's frustration, wipes away the uh, borders away expression that he had on his face. And he very kindly, you might say very pitifully, says, I'll turn back too. Stephen says he'll see Miss Williams home. And Sophia, whose eyes at this point are brimming with tears, asks them to please go on. So this is a very, very awkward situation, made even more intense and important for us by the appearance as they're talking of Diana, riding into the field, intent on the fox, not looking at them at all. She's sitting up straight in the saddle. She looks like she's been only riding for half an hour, completely part of her horse. She and the horse go straight at the fence and right over. And here's O'Brien's description seen through the eyes of Jack and Stephen. Her form, her high-held head, her contained joy, fierce gravity were as beautiful as anything Jack or Stephen had ever seen. She had not the slightest notion of it, but she had never looked so well 
in her life. The sight, we think, might have made Mrs. Williams even more uneasy, even more uneasy, Mike, than we were saying just a couple of paragraphs ago. And A, this is a great moment. Like I love the fact that this is when Stephen, Jack has already kind of seen her and taken notice of her. This is the moment that Stephen takes notice of Diana in all her glory. Maybe as we look back on this moment in a paragraph or a chapter or two, we might say to ourselves that this is the point where Stephen falls in love with Diana. Maybe. And Mike, I also love the description of the two different women and their characters. You can take their attitude to jumping the fence and participating in the hunt as maybe a bit of an analogy for their attitudes to sex and marriage. One of them is composed and purposeful and focused, and the other one is awkward and hesitant and embarrassed and anxious about what's on the other side. And and Mike, I guess tired too, and that's a factor, right? (laughs) Not the stamina. Oh my gosh, Ian, that, all right. Before, Before we stick our feet in our mouths, Perhaps we should take a little break here, right? I think that's a very good I, idea. I agree with you. I do think from the piano playing through the fox hunting, we're just seeing, uh, and, and and in their background stories, yeah. real differences between these two women who are standing out so much in these opening chapters. Fantastic. As you say, Mike, let's take a moment, maybe a cold shower, and uh, we'll be right back. <laughs> If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. Hope you're dried off from your shower. Uh, Well, (laughs) Mrs. Williams hasn't seen this, but she hasn't stopped working to get Diana out of the way. She's through a number of calls arranged to have a half-mad cousin left unattended so that Diana will have to go look after him and only be brought back the day of the ball by one of the captain's guests. So Diana's going to be out of the way, but before she's left, Cecilia, we joined... She tells Di, their nickname for Diana, that Dr. Matron is waiting for her. And she notes that he's wearing a new green coat with a black collar and a new tie wig she thinks he bought on his recent trip to London. She tells Di she's made, obviously, another conquest. Diana tells her to stop peering from behind the curtain like a housemaid and asks to borrow her hat. And Cecilia says he's looking so much better. He'd almost be handsome if he held himself up. Mrs. William, who's peering from another window, says, yeah, he's such a fine conquest, a penniless naval surgeon, someone's natural son, and a papist, and chastises Sissy for saying he's a fine conquest. Well, there we go, Mrs. Williams. Aren't we coming to love you more and more? (laughs) Uh, Mike, we're getting a bit of familiarity creeping in here. Everybody's starting to call each other by short forms of their names and nicknames. And I, I love what we get next, which is dialogue between Stephen and Diana. And it's their own particular, very intellectual form of familiarity. Outside now, Diana says to him, good morning, Maturin. And she goes on to say that she hopes she hasn't kept him waiting. She compliments him on his neat cob. That's a very kind of stout, but kind of compact horse. Good morning, Villiers, says Stephen. You're late. You're very late. It is the one advantage there is in being a woman. You do know I am a woman, Maturin. 
she says. Uh, I am obliged to suppose it, since you affect to have no notion of time. Can't tell what o'clock it is. Although why the trifling accident of sex should induce a sentient being, let alone such an intelligent being as you, to waste half this beautiful clear morning, I cannot conceive. Come, let me help you to mount. Sex. Sex. And she says, hush, Maturin. You must not use words like that here. It was bad enough yesterday. Yesterday, he says, oh, yes. But I am not the first man to say that wit is the unexpected copulation of ideas. Far from it. It is a commonplace. And the fantastic button on this fantastic conversation comes from Diana. As far as my aunt is concerned, she says, you are certainly the first man who has ever used such an expression in public. <laughs> and Mike, there's, there's so much that I think we, you and I both like about this passage. I love the bantering tone that says that they've got familiar with each other. It, it doesn't tell us yet that they're in love, but it tells that they've gone from being very awkward and distant to Maturin wearing a new coat and wig and having this very kind of, at least platonically friendly, bantering chat with her. He's certainly no longer the quiet, bowing, you know, small scruffy man that we saw just a few paragraphs ago. And Mike, I also like that this this development happened off camera. This conversation is clearly between two people who have got to know each other well, and they've done all of that without us being present, without any narration, without us being in on any of the dialogue. Just, we just know that they're acquainted and they're flirting pretty conscientiously. They are. And, and Ian, wit is the unexpected copulation of ideas. So right. <laughs> you, know, you mentioned as, as, as you were talking about what's coming here, where do we hear this phrase from? Well, it's great. I've, I've never stopped to look this up. I've always just assumed it was something that Stephen came up with. But it's commonplace because it was written by who was at that time a very, very celebrated writer. It's from another Johnson, this time Samuel Johnson, 18th century essayist, writer of not the first, but the most famous first dictionary of the English language. And he was very much into writing witty essays. And in this particular essay, he made this joke about unexpected copulation of ideas and went on to explain that trying to be witty is only worthwhile if you have great knowledge and memory and imagination. So I think that's a little bit of uh, halo polishing there by Patrick O'Brien. Well, I think so. And and it's also a great foreshadowing for Wit and Jack Aubrey, which we've seen a little yeah. bit so far, but we'll see again and again and again. <laughs> oh my goodness. Anyway, they ride off, and Stephen says that he is not in the least degree interested in women, only in persons. And I, I love that. Mm. I love that line. And he points out, he says, ah, there's the field by where I first saw you. You were riding. And he says, you know, we should ride back over in that area tomorrow. There's a, a congregation of multicolored stoats I would really love to show you. And Diana says, well, she can't go tomorrow. She's going to Dover to look after a sort of cousin who's not right in the head. Uh, Stephen says, well, you know, I'll be in Dover, as a matter of fact. Do you mind if I come by for a cup of tea? And Diana says, well, you couldn't come to a better address since my cousin, Mr. Louds, imagines himself to be a teapot. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, Diana then stops with a hesitation and a shyness that O'Brien tells us sort of really more resembles Sophia than herself. And she asks Matron if she may beg him to do her a kindness. He stops. He says, certainly, and looks straight into her eyes. And O'Brien writes, and then quickly away at the sight of the painful emotion in them. 
So I, I love wow. this connection here. Yeah. And she says, you know something about my position in the Williams house. And she asked if he'll sell some jewelry for her while he's in London. She knows he's going back into town. And he says, certainly he will. She hopes to get at least 10 pounds for it. And then if, if indeed he does, ask Stephen to give the money to Mr. Harrison at the Royal Exchange, along with this note of things that she needs so that she'll have something to wear to the ball. And she keeps repeating, you know, I must have something to wear. I'm thinking, wow, wow. This is, uh, you know, another really great moment between the two of them. Now, interestingly, and I was so thrilled to say, oh, I had never knew that a group of stoats was called a congregation. You know, with my right. religion background, I thought, oh, wow, isn't this great? Well, in fact, it's not. Huh. <laughs> but, but it sure sounds great. I, I, I searched and searched. I went as far as Google Bard, who said, maybe a couple people have said that, but you would never use that expression in a formal or scientific context. And we know Stephen Matron, speaking about nature, is always formal and scientific and taxonomic. So I kind of wondered, maybe it's period related, but I couldn't find anything. You know, you, you usually hear other words, pack, gang, caravan, even a trip of stoats. Hmm. But you're looking further with stoats, it's even more of a, of a kind of funny idea because they don't gather very often. Males and females live separately, marking their territories with scent. They're very territorial. They're solitary hunters, and they rarely gather except for mating or in the case of a mother raising the young here. So I, I kept thinking about this and going, wow, clearly O'Brien is doing something with this here. Yeah. He hasn't used congregation for no reason. He hasn't used stoats for no reason. And these multicolor stoats that Stephen's very specific about here, he uses the you know, the, the, the technical term for that. Um, so maybe, maybe we come back to this a little bit as this relationship you know, continues here. Amazing. You know, once again, Mike, especially with the personification of an animal, you dig a little bit deeper and there's something that O'Brien's pointing us towards here. It's just great, great stuff. By the way, I, I just want to come back to this conversation between Stephen and Diana and it's tantalizing they're close to each other. He's perceiving the pain that she's in from being in this very awkward, disadvantaged situation. We don't really know yet whether that's love or platonic friendship. Right. And if, right. You, if, if you kind of take the take the text at its face value as a as a Stephen person, I think he's hook, line and sinker. But this could still be the kind of platonic brother sister friendship that you might find between two adults that have got the kind of bantering relationship that they seem to have. So we're going to need to see what happens around the ball for this to really work itself out. So Diana's dress, as purchased for by Stephen, is ready and she's ready for the ball as the day arrives. Her cousin's servant announces the person who's shown up to escort her back to Melbury for the ball. It's a Mr. Babington and old hands at the cannon, no Babington for a long time. If we are still only two books in, we might just remember from Master and Commander that he was a midshipman. But he's going to stick around, let's put it that way. Diana greets him. He's young, he's short. He has rum brought for him to ward off the cold. And he wants to leave quickly so that the horse doesn't take cold. And Diana is very nervous, she being an experienced horsewoman, at the sight of this big nervous horse with its big white eyes and his laid-back ears showing distress. 
and she learns that there's no groom, Babington intends to drive himself. And let's just say shaky health and safety in coach riding is going to be a theme much later on in the canon. So maybe this is very, very long-term foreshadowing here. But this little coach, this dog cart, knocks over a post on the way out of the drive. And seeing how Babington drives, Diana can't believe that he didn't have a spill on the way up there. She decides that she's going to have to take him down a bit so that she can take over and drive. And her moment comes as they're going up a long hill. The horse slows to a walk. And in one of the great jokes of the O'Brien canon, we learn that the bean-fed horse, as it proved by a thunderous long, long fart, is going to take his place in the conversation here. I beg your pardon, says Babington in silence. Diana says, that's all right. I thought it was the horse. Insert laugh line here. And she sees that this put-down has settled his hash. By the way, this is this was an old and familiar joke long before Patrick O'Brien put it in the book, but it's brilliant. She thinks that has settled his hash. So now she thinks she can move in and show him how they drive in India. So she takes over the reins and the whip and settles the horse in. And Mike, we're, we're reading through at the slower pace. So just this once, I thought, let, let's go find out what bean-fed horse might relate to. Lots of you know this already. I think it's a quote from Shakespeare. It's a quote from A Midsummer Night's Dream, Act 2, Scene 1. When I, a fat and bean-fed horse, beguile, neighing in likeness of a filly foal, and on her withered dewlap pour the ale, a merrier hour was never wasted there. There you go, Mike. It's Shakespeare. You know, it's it's funny, and I have to say, you know, I've been around farting horses all my life, some being fed, and never <laughs> once was put in mind of Shakespeare. But now I, I always will be. <laughs> oh, well, you know, having settled the horse finally, Diana decides, okay, you know, he's she's kind of, you know, brought Babington out. Now she wants to win back his kindness. And so she does this. She's very masterful at this. And so it's, it's you know, Kind of something I put in the back of my mind. She, boy, she can work men pretty well here. She asks him all these naval questions, ask if it's true that he was part of the Cacafuego action, never a greater disparity of forces, she says, and says Captain Aubrey must be very much like Lord Nelson. Well, Babington's just delighting in all this, and he says he doubts Nelson could have pulled it off as handsomely as the prodigious Captain Aubrey. And he goes on to talk about Captain Aubrey, about what a great person he is by land. He says he'd let Babington and Pullings pick out their own horses and race three times around the paddock and upstairs into the library for a guinea aside and a bottle of wine. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's like, wow. <laughs> this is something. Diana says, well, who won? And he says, well, they all fell off at different times. And then adds, the captain probably fell off so that he wouldn't take their money. And I thought, ah, oh, here, here is a really touching yeah. view into Jack's character here. I've got these youngsters that are, are under my command. I'm not going to take their money here. But Babington said, he's so taut at sea, but we all love him. And again, ah, yes, yes, yes. Well, they stop for a meal and to change at the end. They're getting close to the ball here. And Babington says if he knew he was bringing her, the prettiest girl he's ever seen, he would have brought a pincushion and a bottle of scent to put in the room for her. 
Well, she tells him, yeah, he's a fine figure of a man and she's glad to be under his protection. And O'Brien writes, Babington's spirits mounted to an alarming degree. (laughs) (laughs) That's alarming to us. Never mind alarming if Mrs. Williams had been on the scene. Right. Oh, bless him. We love Babington. So it's the day of, it's the evening of, they arrive at the ball and the text says, two dozen naval eyes admire Diana. Her piratical dash and openness is how it's described, is very attractive to sea officers. And to be fair, the sea officers are also very much attracted by most of the other women there as well. There's Sophia, she's in a pink dress with a gold sash. She opens the ball, dancing with Captain Aubrey. Bit of a victory there for Mother Williams. Diana tells Stephen that Sophie's lovely, that there's not another woman to touch her. She'd give her eye teeth, she says, to have Sophie's skin. And Stephen puts across this very kind of genial, detached point about women are superior to men because they are able to have an unfeigned, objective, candid admiration for good looks in other women, a real pleasure in their beauty. And I I think he's true. I think that's still something that women are good at. He noticed then that Diana, or really he points out then that Diana's wearing this very elegant dress and he then has heard other women saying so that they admire Diana's dress. She's made no concessions to Mrs. Williams in the dress since, as the text says, it was understood that at a ball, any woman was allowed to make the best of herself. Now, Diana knows that if women are equal, one who can spend 50 guineas looks better than one who can spend 10 pounds. And Mike, I, I wonder who that's for. Is that is that the thought that Jack might find Sophia prettier because she's from a wealthier family? Or is that just justifying Diana's decision to invest a little and speculate in the value of her gown and her, her look here? Yeah, yeah. It's certainly, you know, we, we can kind of see why this was so important. She's thinking, I'm going to be at a disadvantage anyway. Let me yeah. see if I can at least, you know, blunt the odds just a little, a little bit. Well, The dancing begins, the hall is decorated with bunting, and the signal engage the enemy more closely, which, of course, only the seamen understand. And in addition to all the neighborhood, you know, the text tells us that their faces from Portsmouth, Chatham, London, wherever the peace had thrown them ashore. So all these great sailors that Jack knows, they're determined to enjoy themselves and are succeeding to admiration, O'Brien tells us. And the other sailors there, not the officers, make great waiters. And for once, you know, to everybody's delight, especially the women, there are more men than women, and all of the men are eager to dance. Mrs. Williams is busy telling people that she, of course, had encouraged the idea of a ball from the beginning. So (laughs) Mrs. Williams being Mrs. Williams, even at the ball. And Mike... It's funny, I look back on this chapter and I think that I got a lot of description of the big picture of the ball, Mrs. Williams and the signal bunting and all the sailors there. But actually, we we only get a couple of paragraphs of it and then we get one of these great O'Brien switches of point of view. We go from the broad picture of the ball and the decorations and the joy and the dancing in closer with Stephen and Diana. After two dances together, Stephen says to Diana that she's looking pale, so he invites her to sit down in fresher air out in the orangery. She's promised, she says, to dance with Admiral James, so she's going to meet Stephen in the orangery after supper. In due course, after supper, there she comes with the Admiral and two sailors following her until they see that Stephen is there with her shawl. It turns out that one of them is Moat, 
He says, I didn't know the doctor had it in him. I thought he was a monk. And Pullings, who, who doesn't normally say a bad word about any situation, curses and said he thought he'd been getting on so well. And by the way, Mike, I, I love the fact that we've got these sailors. We've got Babington earlier on. We've got Mowat and Pullings and the Admiral all just going for it. They're going, this woman is beautiful. Who cares if I'm not a catch? Today is today, and I'm a guy, and she's hot, so I'm going for it. Contrast that with what comes in the conversation with Stephen next. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm with you, Ian. This is just uh, such a stunning conversation to me. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to start with just the text because yeah. I, I couldn't do it justice otherwise. You are not cold, asked Stephen, tucking the shawl around her shoulders. And as though the physical contact between his hand and her bare flesh established a contact, sending a message that had no need of words, he felt the change of current. But in spite of the intuition, he said, Diana. And it trails off because she immediately says, tell me, she said in a hard voice, cutting right across him. Is that Admiral James married? He is. I thought so. You can smell the enemy a great way off. Enemy? Of course. Don't be a fool, Matron. You must know that married men are the worst enemies women can have. Get me something to drink, will you? I am quite faint with all that fug. Fug being kind of a heavy, musty, unpleasant atmosphere. Wow. So we're right into it here, Ian. Oh, my goodness. We really are. And she's she's on one, right, with this, this rant of hers, you might say, about friendship with men. She says, there's no friendship to be had with a man. They all want your heart, your life, your future. Your And she stops short of saying something that's maybe more coarse. He knows exactly what she means. She recounts many of the men who've tried it on with her here and in India. And she wonders, who the devil do they think I am? She's really winding herself up with indignation here. She says, the only honest one was one in India who sent an old woman to say that he'd take her into keeping. And if she'd known she'd end up here in the English countryside with these rustics without a penny, under the care of some vulgar, pretentious, ignorant woman who detests me, she would have been tempted to accept. She's looking into the future with her looks going, which is the only thing that she has, and she expresses this to Maturin like this. Listen, she says, I speak openly to you because I like you. I like you very much, and I believe you have a kindness for me. You're almost the only man I've met in England I can treat as a friend. Trust as a friend. And, by the way, Mike, this this expression of the friend zone, I think, to, to contemporary ears, sounds like he's being told where he sits now. And Stephen wants the conversation to go on. He says she has his friendship. And after a long pause with some lightness, he says... He's not being completely just. She's wearing, as he points out, a dress that would inflame St. Anthony, a dress that provokes men, and then she complains that they're satyrs if the provocation succeeds. She says, if he's saying that she's provocative, and she's kind of stirring a little bit for an argument here, he says that's exactly what he's saying. He doesn't think she knows how much she makes men suffer. In any case, he goes on to critique her argument, her rational logic. She's arguing from the particular to the general. Not all French waiters have red hair. And she says, well, they all have red hair somewhere about them, and it shows sooner or later, which is a also a, a funny connection back, Mike, to Diana's observation somewhere else in the chapter that Sophie didn't know that men had chest hair. But never mind. Let's put the waiters and the hair and the chests to one side. 
with here with Stephen and her. Yeah, yeah. She believes that Matron is an exception. Being able to confide in him is a great comfort to her, she says. She was brought up among intelligent men and misses them. So she's so glad to be able to speak freely to him. Stephen says, well, Sophia is intelligent. And Diana asks if he really thinks so, saying she does have a sort of quickness, but as the text says, she is a girl. We don't speak the same language. And Diana goes on to say that she's beautiful, but she knows nothing. How could she? And Diana says she cannot forgive Sophia her fortune. She says it's unfair. Life is just so unfair. And Stephen runs off, brings her an ice. And Diana says, the only thing a man can offer a woman is an equal marriage. She says she only has about four or five years left. And if she cannot find a husband by then, and then she trails off saying, but where can one be found in this howling wilderness? And then I, I, you know, I'm really struck by this. And she says to Stephen, do I disgust you much? I mean to put you off, you know. Mm. Oh. Now, I I think it's becoming clear that this is not just two kind of grown-up teenagers bantering with each other. There's some real emotion and there's some real edge to this conversation. Stephen says, I'm aware of your emotions, Villiers. You do not disgust me at all. You speak as a friend. You hunt and your chase has a beast in view. And Diana, who's noticing the literary illusion that we'll dig into in a second, gives them a little well-done matcher in. He goes on to ask if she insists then on an equal marriage. She says, at the very least, I despise a woman so poor-spirited and lacking in courage as to make a mesalliance, uh, a marriage to a person of lower status. And she noted that there was a smart little whippersnapper of an attorney who once had the infernal confidence to make her an offer. She was mortified. She says she would rather look after her mad uncle, the teapot, for the rest of her days. And Mike, this is another one of those great literary moments. Let's let's dig into this for a second. Um, your chase has a beast in view. We've heard it before. I know for sure we're going to hear it again. Tell us a bit about where this comes from. This, like you said, you know, was a line in Master and Commander. We'll, we'll hear it again. As you say, O'Brien makes many references to the work of this English poet and playwright, John Dryden, who was England's first poet laureate in 1668. The specific line comes from a satirical poem called The Secular Mask, written in 1700, reflecting on the turn of the century. It's actually put as an addition to a comedy written in the the earlier 17th century, but the primary characteristics, I, I think, are really telling here. They're Greek gods. Diana, first and foremost, the Roman goddess of hunting and chastity, interestingly. Yeah. <laughs> Mars, the god of war. And Venus, the goddess of love. And, and in the poem itself, you know, these are kind of used to tell a satirical story about changes in the prior age. So they're referring to specific people and parts of British history in the 1600s. But this line is spoken by Momus the Greek personification of satire and mockery, who says, pointing to Diana, thy chase had a beast in view. And then she points to Mars and says, thy wars brought nothing about, points to Venus and says, thy lovers were all untrue. And Ian, this this line is repeated in a chorus of everybody at, at the very end. All of a piece throughout, Put a pin in that line. We'll hear it again and again. 
All of a piece throughout, thy chase had a beast in view. Thy wars brought nothing about. Thy lovers were all untrue. Tis well an old age is out and time to begin anew. So, oh my gosh. You know, I think we could so we could wail on this all day long. Really a great, a great setup to this budding, you know, situation that's brewing here. Oh, it's great. And it takes us into the different attitudes and prejudices of the different characters. It takes us towards what O'Brien thinks are the, the, the benefits and the futility of some of the things that they're pursuing. It, it, it's fantastic. We dug into this last time, I think, certainly when we were reading HMS Surprise. As we've noticed, lots of the allusions and literature that we're getting here, at least from British literature, is from the Enlightenment. We're not dealing with any of the, what you might call immediately contemporary romantic literature. We're not dealing with Keats or Shelley or any of those other guys, which were in any case a little bit later in the 19th century. All of Stephen's influences and all these quotations that O'Brien is bringing for us on Stephen's behalf are from the age of the Enlightenment, from this very dispassionate, rationalistic point of view. And Stephen's love affair with Diana, I think, is being talked about in this very intellectual way. It's not expressed in a romantic way at all. And, and I was musing on this, on the, the, the very rationalistic, high-minded point of view that Stephen has about his love for Diana. And so I went looking in the complete text, which you can search online, how many times does anybody at any time say the three words, I love you? And the answer is only three times. They're all between Diana and Stephen. They all have a but or a reservation next to them. And they put Stephen on the defensive and put him at a disadvantage. So this idea of romantic love is something that Stephen's not even going to be able to really reliably put a name to. In contrast, he's able to talk about things in an enlightened way, but that's handicapping him. So it seems to me that whereas Jane Austen, O'Brien's kind of idol in this respect, Jane Austen was really partly about satirizing the British middle classes cold and awkward and transactional approach to love. O'Brien, though, is doing a similar but different thing. He's exploring, I think, all the way through the canon, the consequences of being stuck in this detached enlightenment perspective, of only being able to talk about relationships through this very enlightenment detachment, this very kind of analytical style, which is great for maintaining kind of emotional safety when you're Stephen Maturin, but I have a feeling that it's going to have some, some costs and concerns in the long term. Isn't it interesting as we think about all the people who've talked with and, and known O'Brien a little bit, uh, I wonder how he talked about and thought about yeah. <laughs> all of that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. If only we had a biographer to talk to. If only. <laughs> ah. Stephen asked Diana to define her beast, this beast that she has in view. In other words, you know, who is it that she's looking that she'd like to be married to? And Diana says that he must have money some sense, not be deformed, not too ancient. It would be nice if he could ride a horse and someone who doesn't get drunk. And she notes that that's one of the things that she likes about Matron, saying that Captain Aubrey and half the other men here will have to be carried to bed tonight. <laughs> so Stephen asks her then if it might be a bit late for her to think about Jack Aubrey. He has the impression that in, in terms of the Sophia Jack relationship that tonight might be decisive. And she expresses a bit of skepticism. She says, Well, has Aubrey confided in you? He says, 
she would never speak to him as if she thought he was a tattletale. So he's kind of pushing back at her saying, I'm, I'm not the informer. And Diana says she thinks he's wrong about Jack and Sophie. The captain may well make his declaration, she says, but Sophie's going to need longer. She's afraid of marriage. We're reminded of the fact that she, you know, her horse pulled up and she shied away from jumping over the fence. She had cried, and we talked about this a moment ago, she had cried when Diana told her that men have hair on their chests. She hates being manipulated by her mother. She's strong-willed, and it will take a lot to move her. She's not afraid, says Diana, of being left on the shelf. So these are all her reasons why she thinks Sophie's not going to be such a pushover for Jack as everybody seems to think. Stephen then says, well, do you think that Sophie is in fact attached to Orby? Do you think there's any, any, any commitment, any love there? Yeah. Well, Diana says she doesn't really know, and she suspects that Sophia doesn't either. Diana says Aubrey certainly is a husband any woman would be glad to have. He's well-off, good-looking, distinguished in his profession with a future before him, an unexceptional family, meaning, you know, no really bad stuff. Well, stick a pin in that. (laughs) Uh, He's cheerful and good nature. She thinks Sophia is entirely unsuited to him, however. She says, you know, he needs somebody more alive. And Stephen says, well, perhaps she has a passionate side that Diana doesn't know about. Diana says, stuff. She says, Aubrey needs a different woman and she needs a different man. Perhaps that she's more suited to Matron if Atron could stand Sophia's ignorance. Oh, hmm. wow. you've got to ask yourself, wow. is this Diana trying to engineer a way to suggest to everybody that I, I don't know. So Sophie and Stephen are going to become, well, without too many spoilers, Sophie and Stephen are going to become close, but there's no way there's a romantic connection between the two of them. That's very wishful thinking or maneuvering, I think, on Diana's part. So then Stephen asks, would Jack Aubrey answer for her? He means Diana herself. She says, well, I like him well enough. I'd rather have a person who's less of a big boy. She'd rather have somebody who's a, a grown-up man. And Stephen goes in to defend Jack here. He's well-considered in his profession. That's something that she wants. She says, well, yes, but a man can be brilliant in his profession, but a mere child outside it, she likes, she says, she likes politicos. They are reading men, she says, like Stephen. She wishes Aubrey read more and was more like Stephen, who's very good company and someone that she likes being with. But he is handsome. She points over to him dancing and says, it's a shame that he wants decision. And Stephen protests a bit. You you wouldn't say that about him if you saw him taking a ship into action. And she means this lack of decision is about his relationships with women. He's sentimental. And I think mm. right there, Mike, Diana is on the money. I think sentimental is exactly what Jack is about many of the women that he's going to encounter. Well, Diana asked if she should tell Matron something that will shock him, even though he's a medical man. And he says, you know, go on. Mm -hmm. She says she was married. She is not a girl. And she says that intrigues were as common in India as they are in Paris. And there are many times she is tempted to play the fool and would if she lived in London instead of this dreary hole. And Ian, boy, my danger Will Robinson lights. We're, we're, We're going pretty strong here going, whoa, what are you saying here? It's fascinating. She's trying to shock him, I guess. She's maybe just trying to draw him into the friend zone of talking in a very detached and sort of cold, even cynical way about relationships. 
She's trying to say, if I'm ever in consideration to be anybody's wife, I'm going to be an unreliable and unfaithful one. And I don't care very much really about the institution of marriage in the first place. Now, we can guess, and we're going to find out in a minute what Stephen's reaction to all this is emotionally, but it's a really dark and complex motivation that she's got, I think, for for raising this and for just kind of plonking it in front of him like this. Yeah. Well, Stephen asked Diana if she thinks Jack is to her way of thinking. And she says, well, yes, there are signs that mean a lot to a woman. And that, quite frankly, she's surprised he ever looked at Sophie. And I love how she's been Sophia all the way through here. And all of a sudden, Diana is now calling her Sophie. So, (laughs) you know, Sophia is so beautiful. She could be touching everything. Now it's Sophie. Wow. So we've changed tenor here. I I, I love how O'Brien uses little things like this in telling a story. She wonders if Sophie's fortune would mean a great deal to Jack or to the captain to Aubrey. She asked if he and Matron have known each other long, you know, and she says, you know, you naval men probably have known each other forever. And Stephen says, no, no, he's, he's no naval guy. Stephen says he's only known Aubrey since 1801 when they met at a concert, took a liking to each other. And Jack asked him to sail as his surgeon being penniless. He says he accepted. So boy, Stephen is being quite, forthright here, you know, knowing that, you know, boy, he is absolutely saying, yeah, I'm not checking your boxes, even though there are all these things that you like about me. But he says he does know Jack well enough to say that as far as him being interested in a woman's fortune, he can say that he's never known a man more unworldly than Jack. In other words, I don't think that is going to be the thing that gets to him. And then Stephen asked, if he should tell Diana something about Jack. She says, oh, do tell. (laughs) So here it comes. By the way, I love this because Stephen is absolutely on the money here about Jack. He's not on the money about himself, and I suspect he lacks perspective a lot about Diana, but he's got some great insight into his friend Jack. Some time ago, he says, he had an unhappy affair with another officer's wife. She had the dash, the style, and the courage he loves, But she was a hard, false woman, and she wounded him very deeply. So, virginal modesty, rectitude, principle, you know, have a greater charm for him than they might otherwise have had. Ah, says Diana, yes, I see. I see now. And you have a big aunt, a crush for her too? She's asking Stephen whether he fancies Sophie. It's no use, I warn you. She would never do a thing without her mother's consent, and that is nothing to do with her mother's being in control of her fortune. It is all duty. And by the way, Mike, there's another big theme for the next 19 novels. It's all duty. (laughs) And she goes, you would never bring my Aunt Williams round in a thousand years. Still, you may feel on Sophie's side. And Stephen's very cautious about this. He says, I have the greatest liking and admiration for her. But no tendre, she means no tender loving, He says, not as you would define it, but I am averse to giving pain, Villiers, which you are not. She stood up straight as a wand. We must go in. I have to dance this next bout with Captain Aubrey, she said, kissing him. I am truly sorry if I hurt you, Maturin. End of chapter two. Wow. 
Wow. <laughs> that ending. Oh my gosh. It just blew me right out of the chair. Wow. Yeah. And, and the fact that she bam pops up when, you know, he's being so honest and then she really puts the needle to him and kisses him. It's like, oh. ah, ah. And oh, Mike, I, I was saying earlier on, you know, what had Stephen fallen in love with Diana when he saw her take the fence? Well, probably based on this. By the time we get to this exchange, he is both being inspired and wounded by her in equal measure. He's on the hook. <laughs> um, none of us reads this and thinks this is going to end well, but Stephen Maturin is in love with Diana Villiers right here. Right, right. Boy, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, uh, last chapter, we were simply meeting, introducing the Williams family, yeah. and perhaps somewhat unlike a Jane Austen novel. Yeah, we are deep. <laughs> we are we are miles deep into the characters, you know, of the main characters of this story. And that tension that you talked about, oh my gosh, it's building very quickly. <gasps> building yeah. very quickly. And it, it's funny we were talking about this. This is one of the moments when people become part of Team Steven. You know, he's gone from being the awkward person who elbowed our hero in the ribs and kind of was a hanger-on during his cruise in the Mediterranean to being somebody who we care about. We see a lot of this opening couple of chapters of this novel through his eyes. I, I can get alongside that. It's interesting, though, that I, I can't get alongside Diana yet. Like, we're clearly going to be interested in her She's unbelievably attractive to Jack and to Stephen, but I haven't seen her do anything yet, Mike, that suggests to me that she isn't simply a shallow, wounded but wounding, rather kind of feckless woman. Well, and it is interesting because for those of us listened to us talk with Rachel McMillan yeah. about Diana earlier, you know, as we went through the canon, I understand Diana's need to make her way in this at the time yeah. very unfair world. Yeah. Uh, but but I'm, I'm moving from a very early admiration in her horsemanship and the fact that she's got perseverance and stamina and everything to something you know somewhat less so at the moment. Like you, I agree. And, and, and as always, you know, such a feature we saw in Master and Commander, we're seeing here. I'm glad that with all this very serious, really engaging stuff, we also have these bits of classic Patrick O'Brien humor thrown in. Babington and Diana's interaction and the horse scene, you, see, you, know, I, you know, I find myself giggling all the time on some of that stuff here. Wow. It is great, isn't it? The, uh, the, the language is great. The writing is great. It's reminded me as well of the chapter in Master and Commander where we had the big, long conversation between James Dillon and Stephen. Oh. It's playing a similar role maybe to this big, long conversation between Diana Villiers and Stephen. You could easily have put at the end of this chapter, at the end of that conversation, James Dillon's closing sentence. I don't know if you remember it. Uh, we understood one another better before ever I opened my mouth. It is one of those conversations that takes us, the reader, forward, but it really hasn't helped the two protagonists. Oh wow! I yeah, I love that. What a great insight. Yeah, you know, and I, 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 I'm with you too. This, um, boy, this Stephen and Diana interaction here, all the things going on between them. You know, the fact that she keeps saying, you know, I mean to put you off. Shall I tell you something that I should shock you? I mean, it's almost like you were kind of saying. It's like Diana saying, "Are you noticing this radioactive sticker <laughs> that, that is you know, emblazoned? You know, get, get past you know my looks and look at this radioactive sticker here." And and clearly, 
you know, she keeps repeating over and over how in all the ways he's the guy, all the things she values and clearly reinforcing that he does not fit any of her descriptions of her Mm -hmm. beast. Yet she's clearly very attracted to him. She keeps saying love in a cottage be damned. But at this point, and, and maybe that is, maybe, you know, because Stephen can't offer any more than that. She can't quite make the leap here and knows, like you said, that she wouldn't be true even if she did here. Well, I kept thinking about how Stephen longs to show her this congregation of multicolored stoats. And I, I was remembering that, that stoats are often multicolored because they change their um, coloring over the year. They have different colors for mating. They're white in the winter, but they have a black tip on their tail to kind of confuse predators. And this idea that, again, that they're solitary, independent, living alone, fierce in their own way, both excellent hunters, yet they do come together in congregation from time to time. And I'm thinking, maybe hoping for Stephen and Diana, we can have a little bit of that. But we've got the whole, you know, now Aubrey Diana dynamic, at least from Diana's mind, clearly in play. So I'm sort of thinking, oh my gosh, where does this go from here? And now we've got the potential for a triangle. Wow. It's it's great. I mean, you you talked about the setting up the tensions and the rivalry and the uncertainty. We've got lots of it now. And it's interesting to reflect even early on in, what are we, two chapters into the book. It's so different from Master and Commander but still just as good, still using lots of the same kind of points of reference. Mike, this this seems to be O'Brien coming into his own. He embarked upon Master and Commander, as you might say, as a trial novel, a little bit after the fashion of Forrester, at least in order f- to meet the needs of an audience that was in love with Forrester. But this is more for adults, and he's got the green light from another set of publishers. He's got other income to fall back on, and he can do what he wants and really enjoy it and really open it up. And it's great to see where he's going with it. I'm still fascinated to see what he's going to make of all these relationships. For many people, Post Captain is, you know, a, a little bit dry because we're ashore and we're not present with lots of naval action until much later in the books. But I'm really, really relishing this. I think it's great. Even so, Mike, this is O'Brien. We're two chapters in. We've got all of these hairs now running about the relationships. We haven't got any hairs running at all about Jack and his naval commands because we're not at war. But it's still not clear how this novel is going to roll out, right? No, no. And we're just getting to know O'Brien. If if this is, in fact, your, your, your second book being read in your first circumnavigation. But... He's often not very straightforward. So I, for one, right. am dying like you to, to know where does this go next? I guess, Ian, only one way to find out, right? What do you say, Mike, next week to just a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Ah, with all my heart. <laughs> thinks Jack is the thing. Jack thinks the girls are the thing. 
What can possibly go wrong?